Good morning, everyone, and welcome. I know that uh, there are a lot of people who are sick right now, um, some people with COVID, some with uh, apparently cold or flu, others who have been exposed, and so welcome to those who are joining us remotely as well. A couple weeks ago, we uh, finished up Romans chapter 8, so this morning we go on to Romans chapter 10. Very good, you picked up on that. Um, obviously, we're not going to skip Romans chapter 9, but turns out, in my humble opinion, that there's a lot of professing Christians who skip Romans chapter 9. They skip Romans chapter 9 when it comes to their theology, their doctrine of God, and their soteriology, their doctrine of salvation. They um, erect a God according to their preference and a gospel that uh, they prefer, but it doesn't take on board and consider all of the biblical data. By the same token, by the way, we shouldn't uh, erect a theology and soteriology that only focuses on Romans chapter 9 and doesn't take on board all of the other biblical data as well. The, the idea is whatever God has revealed about himself in all of his word, and remember, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, including Romans chapter 9. But whatever God has revealed about himself, that's what we're supposed to believe. Concerning God, concerning the gospel, concerning every area of life and godliness, the whole of Scripture. And if we don't do that, if we pick and choose if we accentuate what we prefer and minimize what we don't like, then the result turns out to be unbiblical, unbalanced, and man-centered. And we don't want that. And so with that in mind, wanting to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ, wanting to believe in the God of the Bible and not a God of our own imagination or preference, let's begin our journey through the great missing Bible chapter, Romans chapter 9. And I have to tell you, I've been saving up for 17 years to say that. <laughs> uh, what I was thinking about doing was bringing an old Bible into the pulpit and ripping out Romans chapter 9, but I thought I might give someone an aneurysm or stroke or heart attack, so no sacrilegious acts behind the pulpit today. Um, but as we begin our journey through Romans chapter 9, we'll see that Paul begins with considering the question of the Jews. And you'll see that it's a great starting point. In other words, what's the story with the Israelites? So let's look in Romans chapter 9. No, we're not skipping it. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13, Lord willing. And uh, 
We'll read through it as, as we go through it, but the first thing that we'll see here in verses 1 through 3 is Paul's burden for the Israelites. Paul's burden for the Israelites. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's having to emphasize how sincere he is and what he's about to say. Maybe Paul was being accused of being anti-Semitic, which would have been strange since he himself was a Jew. Um, maybe people wouldn't be able to believe that Paul had this burden for his countrymen since, since he had suffered so much at their hands. But for whatever reason, Paul found it necessary to emphasize his sincerity in what he's about to say. And here it is, verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul obviously had a great burden for the salvation of the Jews. He uh, says that he would be accursed by God if that's what it would take to save his brothers according to the flesh. And this, of course, reminds us that Paul himself was a Jew. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, he wrote about himself that he was circumcised on the, eight day, on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And Paul wasn't alone. All of the apostles were Jews. All of the members of the early church that was born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they were Jews. The first followers of Jesus were Jews. And of course, we're going to see this as the passage goes on even more, Jesus himself was a Jew according to the flesh. He was the promised son of King David. And why is that important for us to remember that anti-Semitism, bigotry against the Jews, has no place in biblical Christianity. It has no place. There's a lot of people in the history of the church who, in the name of Christ, uh, extol and promote some form or some degree of anti-Semitism. Martin Luther himself, the great reformer whom we admire a lot, and I, I quote from him a lot, but uh, he seems to have been guilty of anti-Semitism, and it's not justified, it's a sin. Rather than being anti-Semitic, Christians should have the same burden for the Jewish people that the Apostle Paul had and that Jesus himself had. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, when Jesus was staring the cross in the face, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together 
as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus had a burden for the Jews, and so it flows that Paul, the Apostle Paul, had a burden for the Israelites as well. So we see that, first of all, in verses 1 through 3. Paul goes on, in the second place, to cover the privileges of the Israelites, the privileges of the Israelites, verses 4 and 5. God blessed the Israelites under the Old Covenant with tremendous spiritual privileges and material privileges. Notice verses five, uh, 4 through 5a. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Let's, let's move through that list quickly. The adoption, Paul says. God was like an adoptive father to Israel under the Old Covenant. He mentions the glory, the Shekinah glory that filled the temple, for example, in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34, God manifested his presence in supernatural, extraordinary, and special ways when the Israelites gathered together to worship God. Paul mentions the covenants, the earth-bound promises that God had made with Israel. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There was the Mosaic covenant. There was the Davidic covenant. And they all flow, by the way, from uh, God's promise to Abraham that's restated a number of places in the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis. For example, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To the Israelites belong the covenants. Paul mentions the giving of the law. And that took place on Mount Sinai. We read about that in Leviticus and uh, I'm sorry, Exodus and Leviticus. That included the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, but it was more than just the Ten Commandments, the entire law of Moses. And it was given by God to the Israelites not to be a curse, not to be a negative thing, not to be a burden, but it was a privilege for the Israelites to have God's law. Paul mentions the worship. That is, worship prescribed by God and carried out in the tabernacle, first of all, which God had instructed the, uh, Moses in terms of its uh, construction. 
And then later on in the various uh, phases of the temple. And that was a big deal because even though worship has always been a normal thing, people today all over the world are worshiping, not necessarily the one true and living God of the Bible, but whoever. But the reason why the worship was such a privilege for the Jews is because here was God saying that uh, believers, that sinners, fallen human beings like them were able to worship the holy God in the way in which he prescribed. And sometimes we take that for granted, but remember, because we are all sinners and we've all sinned against God, God doesn't have to receive any worship from any of us, but he graciously and mercifully prescribed his own acceptable worship to the Jews. Paul mentions the promises. All of the promises from God to Israel, all of which ultimately find their fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all of the promises of God are yes and amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. He mentions the patriarchs, the fathers. Earlier, Alex read from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, where the writer of the book of Hebrews says that God, uh, who at various times and in different ways spoke to the fathers by the prophets, the patriarchs, and chief among them, of course, were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Paul says, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. So again, Jesus was a Jew. He was born with Jewish blood flowing through his brain, uh, brains, through his brain, yes, through his veins. Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's what Christ means. He's the anointed one. He's the promised descendant of David, according to the flesh. Romans chapter 1 and verse 3. According to his human nature, Jesus was a Jew. But then, in the second half of verse 5, Paul here emphasizes that there's more to Jesus than just his human nature. So notice what he says there in the second half of verse 5. He is the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. And I'd like to just say that and move on. But there is um, contention and controversy about that verse, not universally, but a lot of um, teachers, mainly those who deny the Trinity or the um, doctrine of the deity of Christ, they want to put a period basically at the end of Christ there in the sentence and just treat the rest of the words as basically like a doxology. So they would say that Christ um, 
He descended from the patriarchs, from the race of the Jews, according to the flesh. He's the Christ, period. God over all, blessed forever, amen. But that doesn't do justice to the grammar. Grammatically, it's just as I read it from the ESV. He is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But also, this pattern of Paul contrasting the human nature of Christ, which is what he just did, from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. And then he goes into, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. That's what he already did in Romans chapter 1. I, I'll just read for you in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul has done this. So he says in Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, that, he, that uh, he's writing what the prophets and the holy scriptures had already said concerning his son, the son of God, who is descended from David according to the flesh. We've seen that and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So according to the flesh, Son of God. According to the Spirit, the Son of God with power raised from the dead, the Lord, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. It's the same thing here in Romans chapter 9, this antithesis between Christ's two natures, his human nature and his divine nature. And that's one thing to keep in mind. Jesus is both God and man in one person. He has two distinct natures, human nature and a divine nature. Those two natures don't change one another. So his deity doesn't subtract from his humanity. His humanity doesn't subtract from his deity. But they're joined together mysteriously in one person, the God-man, the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here at the end of verse 5, but make no mistake, Jesus Christ, Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, Jesus our, our Savior who died on the cross and rose again, he is God over all, blessed forever. That's Jesus. Paul said in another place, Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, Christians are waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, the privileges of the Israelites. Next, in the passage, Paul discusses the two Israels, the two Israels in verses 6 through 12. There's a transition here in Paul's thinking. But, there's the word of transition. 
It is not as though the word of God has failed. Why would Paul say that? Because for eight plus chapters, he's been discussing how the biblical doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, it's not entirely new. It was foretold in the law and the prophets. Jesus came to fulfill what the law and the prophets anticipated, but it's not out of left field. It's not something that, for example, Paul made up or originated. No, it's the only gospel that has ever existed and Even famous Jews from the Old Testament were saved on the basis of God's grace in this way, like Abraham and David. So it does raise the question, if this is the gospel that was proclaimed by God through the prophets to the Jews of old, through the types and the shadows of the old covenant system, then why didn't it work? Why did so many Jews reject the gospel? And remember, as the Apostle John begins his gospel, the gospel according to John, he says in John chapter 1 and verse 11 that Jesus, the eternal word of God, the word who had become flesh, came to his own and his own did not receive him. So what happened? Did God's word fail? Did God fail? Absolutely not. Now, Paul transitions into some really deep and profound theology. And the way he begins to answer this question, uh, this objection is by distinguishing the two Israels. So notice the end of verse 6, and we'll read through the first part of verse 7. So here's the explanation from Paul. For not all who are descended from Israel, in other words, not all Israel's physical descendants belong to Israel, in other words, the true Israel of God. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Remember, it was God's covenant with Abraham that predated his covenant with Jacob or Israel. And so there are these two groups. There's Israel physical, then there's Israel spiritual. There are the children of Abraham, according to the flesh. Then there are the spiritual children of Abraham. This isn't the first time that Paul himself had made this distinction. Remember in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. 
For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. There's a distinction between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. I'm not making that up. Uh, Reformed Christians didn't make that up. The Holy Spirit made that up, as it were, and that's why Paul wrote what he did. And of course, Paul wasn't the first one to make that distinction either. Jesus did. In John chapter 8 and verse 39, Jesus said to a group of Jews, Jewish religious leaders, uh, um, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were your Abraham's, I'm sorry, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And then John the Baptist did the same thing, remember? John the Baptist said, God is able to raise up physical children of Abraham from these stones. It's not physical descent from Abraham or Israel that is important. What is important is the promise of God. The theme basically is an ethnic and spiritual Israel, an ethnic and a spiritual Israel, or another way to put it, grace rather than race. Grace rather than race. That is what matters. So then, who are the true children of Israel? Who are Abraham's true offspring? Paul says that the key is recognizing the difference between the children according to promise and the children according to the flesh. So notice the second half of verse 7. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. According to the letter of the law, so to speak, it should have been Ishmael. Ishmael should have inherited the promise of God to Abraham. But instead, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What does this mean? Funny we should ask that question. Notice what Paul says next. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. God's gracious promises do not flow through blood. 
You cannot inherit the promises of God through DNA. And then Paul goes on to appeal to the scriptures again. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And that was an unbelievable promise because Sarah was way past her childbearing age. But God said, this is what is going to happen. And the offspring from Sarah's womb, who by all accounts should not bear a son, that offspring, Isaac, shall be the one who will bear my promise and pass that promise down to his descendants. Verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac. So now Paul is going to the next generation. And remember Jacob, one of the um, sons of Abraham, or uh, I'm sorry, Isaac. Isaac's wife was Rebekah. And she conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, and who were those two children? The two children end up being Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel, and Esau. And in verse 11, Paul says, Though they were not yet born and had, not done, and had done nothing, either good or bad. And then Paul adds this statement just to make sure we understand what he's saying. This is like a course correction. Maybe, maybe we're reading into Romans chapter 9. No. Paul says, nope, you're tracking. This is exactly what I mean. So he says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So that's his little milestone, but here's the rest of the story. Verse 12, Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. We're going to get to verse 13. God chose to favor Jacob over Esau. And Paul is really emphatic. He bends over backwards to emphasize that that favor was not because of anything in them, in Jacob and Esau themselves. Jacob didn't deserve it. The name Jacob means cheater, <laughs> usurper. God did go on to change Jacob's name to one who struggles with God, Israel, and that indicates a change of nature. But that was the result and not the cause of God's election. So that's the thing about grace in the Bible. 
Grace is not a spiritual slogan or a cliche. Grace means very, it means something very specific. It means favor from God that the recipient doesn't deserve whatsoever. The reason why God gives it is to be found in God and God alone, not in the recipient of grace. That's grace according to Paul. The church father Augustine put it this way, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. Let me say that again. God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. God does something first. God is the initiator. God is the giver of grace. All right. The two Israels. Now, finally, in verse 13, God's sovereign, distinguishing love. And I already read it. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Paul says, as it is written, it's written in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. That's a really hard saying. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And for me, there are two biblical passages that are really helpful to understand this. These two passages use similar language here. And they help us to understand this verse. Um, with, well, maybe you can turn there. In Genesis chapter 29, I tried to do this fast. Genesis chapter 29. And try not to get sidetracked or distracted by the whole multiple uh, wives thing between Rachel and Leah. But I want you to notice a nuance here. So in Genesis chapter 29, you remember the story. Uh, Jacob loved Rachel. And uh, he ends up going to her father, Laban, wants to marry Rachel. Laban says, sure, work for seven years, and I'll give her to you. And uh, Laban ends up giving uh, to Jacob, not Rachel, but Rachel's sister Leah. And in verse 20, Genesis chapter 29 and verse 20, we're told this. Well, in verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. And in verse 20, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. He obviously loved Rachel. And then Laban pulls that fast one. So then there's another seven years that go by before um, Laban actually gives his daughter Rachel to Laban. But in the meantime, Jacob's got Leah. 
Rachel's sister. Notice these words in verse 30 and 31. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he and Rachel loved, I'm sorry, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And then verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And here's all I want to point out. It's a messed up, complicated scene. We have multiple wives and all of that. But what I want you to notice is that um, Jacob had this peculiar, distinguishing, special love for Rachel. Yes? Clear. There's no evidence in the biblical narrative that Jacob literally, emotionally, hated Leah. There's no evidence that he abused her, that he wanted her dead, that he wanted nothing to do with her, that he mistreated her. Again, the multiple wives thing aside for a minute. So there's the special love for Rachel. Leah knew and felt that she was not the recipient of Jacob's special love that he had for Rachel. In that sense, Leah was hated. Let me just throw that out to you. So it's similar language that we see in Romans chapter 9. Then in Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. The verse 25 gives the context. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them. So it's really easy to be attracted to the great teacher, miracle worker, Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, requires a unique, extraordinary commitment from those who would follow him. So in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's the same language that Paul is using in Romans chapter 9. And let me say, that if I literally, emotionally, from my heart, hate my father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, I'm in sin, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, etc., etc. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not giving this, this absolute command to be a hater. Let me lean on the crutch of R.C. Sproul, who wrote 
Jesus was making a comparison. Those who want to love him must love him before all others. Jesus requires that the love we have for our friends, spouse, mother, father, or children be so much less than we have for him that it could be seen as hatred. And I believe not just because that's what I want Romans chapter 9 and verse 13 to say, but because of these other passages of Scripture and Scripture interprets Scripture, that's what I think the meaning is. This is the sense in which God loved Jacob and hated Esau. If you think about God's dealings with Esau, God was kind and goodwill and benevolent to Esau. He blessed Esau. But God chose to set his affections. God chose to grant his covenant love on Jacob that was unique, that was special, that was extraordinary, that was personal, that was different than the general benevolent love that he had for Esau. And that covenant love that he set on Jacob resulted in Jacob's conversion. Grace is the key to everything, but God's grace is sovereign. God's grace comes from him. So what do we do with Esau? How do we look at Esau? Another way to put the language here, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God rejected Esau, or God passed over Esau, or God left Esau alone. Which, if you're honest, that's what sinners want. Sinners want God to leave them alone. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what decisions I ought to make. Don't tell me how to prioritize my life. Esau ended up living his life is a man whom God left alone. He lived a life as a carnal man, living according to his fleshly appetites and not appreciating the value of a covenant relationship with Almighty God. God gave Esau what he wanted. If you think about it, God gave to Jacob what Jacob himself at the time didn't even know that he wanted. And then God worked in Jacob's heart over time so that then Jacob realized how blessed he was and how undeserving he was. So my question for you, that's the text for today, where are you in your relationship with God this morning. We're going to get into more of this deep and profound theology from Paul 
later on in Romans chapter 9. But for this morning, let's just concentrate on your relationship with God. Are you a recipient of God's eternal love? Has the grace of God changed you? Has the grace of God caused you to become a new creation in Christ? Do you see yourself as a sinner before God who doesn't deserve good things, and yet God has lavished so many good things upon you, chief among them being the good and gracious thing of his salvation? Do you see that Jesus Christ hanging on the cross being punished in the place of sinners like you and me, and then being raised from the dead on the third day, do you see that all of your eggs are in that basket? There's no salvation anywhere else. There's no hope of heaven anywhere else. You cannot work yourself into God's favor. No one else can do it for you but Jesus and Jesus alone. Do you see that? Do you feel that? Do you believe that? Is your life oriented around that? Or do you wish that God would just leave you alone. If that's really the prayer of your heart, God, just leave me alone. Let me live my life. I pray that God will not give you the desire of your heart in that case. I pray that God would not answer that prayer of yours. God, leave me alone. That's the worst thing that could happen to you. I pray that in spite of what you deserve, in spite of your background, in spite of the mess that you've made in your life, in spite of maybe how you've lived your life trying to run from God, in spite of all of that, I pray that today would be the day of your salvation and God would show himself to be the almighty creator who sits on his throne, who does whatever he pleases, and who loves, who delights in saving sinners like you. And then he'll do that today. And he'll violate all of your norms and all of your preferences and do it anyway. And in the language of Psalm 110, in the day of his power, make you willing. And the reason why I have a lot of hope is <clears throat> it's because of this word and because God did it for me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the assurance that your word can never fail. Whatever purpose for which you send it, it will accomplish that purpose. It will fulfill your good pleasure. We bow our knees to you, Lord. You are the one who makes the difference among sinners. We're all sinners, Lord. We know it. We all 
deserve justice, but some receive mercy. I pray that you would help those of us who do name the name of Christ, help us to live lives that reflect your mercy and grace. And those who are unsaved, who are hearing this word, save them, Lord. Call them to yourself. Open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and soften hard hearts and draw them powerfully and effectually to Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.